Good morning. Hope you're all doing well this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Chad. I'm the pastoral intern here. Uh, really excited, honored, humbled to, to be up here this morning preaching God's Word to you. Thank you for that. Good morning. Uh, I just want to start with some open humility already going off notes here. I had a hard week. Anyone else? I just had a rough week. Um, but I experienced the grace of God this week uh, in his word, studying for this sermon for you guys and reaching out to new friends in this body, asking for prayer, and Dan reaching out, um, saying he's praying for me, and listened to some, some of my favorite worship songs, and I was just ministered to this week and this morning. So I just want to say I'm, I'm excited to be here with you guys, and I hope the Lord will do what he did in my heart and your hearts this morning, because I know uh, it can be tough some weeks, so... Um, let me pray first, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here this morning. It is a gift of your grace that we have a church body to come to and to worship, to sing songs to you and to pray to you and to fellowship and to encourage each other in the gospel and um, to sit under your word and to be formed and shaped by it to acknowledge our own sin, but the price that you paid to forgive our sins through the life of your son. Lord, I'll be honest, um, I don't remember every sermon I've preached. I don't remember every sermon I've heard. Surely we will forget this sermon someday, but we trust that you use this time to, to cause us to persevere in the faith and to learn more about you. And so we trust, Lord, that you'll do that this morning through me. You will use this time to help us know you and love you more, to sustain us. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, as we have already prayed much this morning and this week, that you would draw people to yourself through the preaching of your word, that they would hear the voice of their shepherd saying, come to me, that they would see their own sin and the need for a Savior, and they would come to you and be saved today. We need you, Lord, and we love you, and we want to know you and love you more and be uh, empowered and emboldened um, by your word more this morning to tell people about you and the grace we've received in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray it in his name. Amen. So there are very few exceptions when new isn't better. N new is almost always better. I know some of you are going to come to me after service and say, yeah, but you know, this pair of jeans I bought in 1995, there's nothing like it, but throw me a bone. Most times new is better. That's the overall experience. A car made in 2022 is better than a car made in 1992. Uh, our phones are better now. A phone built now is better than the phones they built a long time ago. I have an iPhone. I can't remember which one it is. I think it's an iPhone 12. That's better than the iPhone I had five years ago and, and a lot better than the one that first came out in 2007. But uh, the new is rarely completely different than the old. The iPhone is still pretty much in the same rectangular shape as it was when the first one came out in 2007. The new is usually just a copy of the old, but with some better improvements. Think about, again, the iPhone, for example, if you have one. 
I remember a few years ago, they started making you enter a passcode to get into your phone. You remember this? It used to not be that way, and then all of a sudden, they want you to enter this passcode every time you get into your phone, and I imagine um, some tech-savvy person, maybe even one of the Apple people, saying, wouldn't it be great if you could just look at your phone and your face would be the passcode that got you into the phone? And sure enough, a few years later, we have this thing called Face ID, which my dad would say is probably pretty scary. They're definitely storing that information, but I think it's a better improvement. You just look at your phone, and it unlocks. It's better than the, the old one, uh, but it's still a copy. It's still similar. The old one is still the template for the new one, and that's what we're going to see this morning. The new is better. That could have been the intro, honestly, for any sermon in Hebrews. That's what the whole book's about. Jesus is better. The new is better than the old. To remind you guys of context, though, last week Stephen took us through chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and showed us how the sacrificial system, the Levitical system, pointed to Christ. It was a shadow of Christ, but not the substance. It was a good system, but a temporary system. And as Stephen poetically reminded us last week, this really stuck with me, it offered a burial of sins, but not a burning. I add to his poetry, it added a covering, but not a complete atonement. And remember in chapter 9, verse 9, that the sacrificial system could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And that in verse 10 said that there would be a time of reformation. Well, the verses this morning speak of the time of Reformation, in which the sanctuary, the sacrifice, and the covenant are all better than the old way, hence the sermon title this morning, The Better Reformation. The point of the passage, and therefore the point of the sermon this morning, is this. Christ entered a better sanctuary by a better sacrifice and inaugurated a better covenant. That's going to be the structure of the sermon. Better sanctuary, better sacrifice, better covenant. And a quick caveat before we really dive into the exposition. What I'm used to and probably what most of you are used to is when we preach, we go verse by verse, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But because of the nature of the passage this morning, there are repeated words and themes all throughout. We're going to be bouncing around the text. So I've done my best to get slides up here. If they're messed up, it's not their fault. It's my fault. But I think you'll be able to follow me because of that, the structure. Better sanctuary, better sacrifice, better covenant. So first, let's look at the better sanctuary. This is verses 11 and the beginning of verse 12 and verse 24. I'll reread them. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Whereas the Levitical priests entered an earthly tabernacle, as we know, Jesus Christ entered the heavenly one. And the earthly tabernacle was a good place. It was made specifically and strictly in obedience to God's commands. You've read Exodus. There are many chapters, God telling the people how specific to make the tabernacle, and then five chapters on how they made it exactly according to the way God told them. But the earthly tabernacle 
was a copy of the heavenly one. I don't know exactly what that means. We'll find out when we're there. In some way, it's a copy of the heavenly one. Verse 24 says, it's a copy of the true thing. The heavenly tabernacle wasn't made with sinful human hands. It's not tainted with sin in any way, and therefore, as the text says, it's greater and more perfect. It is the true and better dwelling place of God. The earthly tabernacle was always meant to point to the better heavenly tabernacle. I was talking with my wife, Audrey, this week about this, and it's what you do when you're preparing a sermon. You're always thinking about it, talking about it over dinner, at a lunch break in the morning, and uh, my wife gets the credit for this illustration you're about to hear. She said it's kind of like the difference between a rehearsal dinner and an actual wedding ceremony. When we were married, I remember this, and as a, a pastor slash aspiring pastor, um, served in various churches, I've officiated about 10 weddings. And the rehearsal dinner, usually we get together. We don't always get together even at the venue. Sometimes it's in someone's backyard, and we practice but it's not the real wedding ceremony. I've never heard a couple say, I just want to stay in this moment forever here at the rehearsal dinner. The rehearsal dinner points you to the desire for the next night, the actual ceremony. It's just a copy and a shadow of the real thing. We want to get to the wedding ceremony. Christ entered the better sanctuary. And unlike the priests of the old covenant, he entered who entered the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. Christ entered, the text says, once for all. Once a year pointed to once for all. And Christ is still, as you know, in this moment, seated in the presence of the Father in the heavenly holy of holies. And how did he enter the heavenly tabernacle? By a better sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself, which is the second point. A better sacrifice. A quick caveat before we look at the better sacrifice. That's an important one, though. Especially with this text, but I would probably argue through most of the Bible, definitely through the Old Testament, blood and sacrifice are synonymous. Blood means sacrificial death. Unless by the context it's referring to an accidental death, we should assume that blood and sacrifice are synonyms. Blood means sacrificial death, and that means a life that is terminated as punishment for sin at the requirement of God. We find this in a really powerful hidden verse, Leviticus 17.11. Listen to this verse. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. I don't have time to do a full exposition on that verse. That's not the point. But the point is, blood is a shorthand term for atonement through substitution. I'm going to say that again. Blood is a shorthand term for atonement through substitution. So with that caveat, let's look at the insufficiency of animal blood versus the sufficiency of Christ's blood. Verse 12, the second half, says this, Christ entered the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, implying the blood of goats and calves was not sufficient to gain access to the heavenly tabernacle. Only the blood of Jesus Christ was. 
His sacrificial death was the only key that could open the door to the heavenly sanctuary. It was the only way in. But the blood of goats and bulls, it wasn't pointless. It served a purpose. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, purifying the flesh, I'm going to remind you again of verses 9 and 10 from last week, from chapter 9. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, the flesh, imposed until the time of reformation. So these animal sacrifices weren't sufficient to purify or to cleanse the inner man, just the outer man, just his flesh. But the blood of Christ was sufficient to cleanse the inner man. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Again, the blood of animals wasn't pointless. It accomplished something the purification of the flesh. And if that was effectual, how much more the blood of the sinless Son of God who offered Himself through the eternal Spirit. A reference to the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the life and ministry of Jesus. I I believe also a reference to His eternality. Jesus is not a created being. He is the second person of the Trinity. He has always existed. He's eternal. His blood, the sacrifice of his own life, was what the sacrificial system was pointing to the whole time. I imagine a softie like me being so overwhelmed at how many animals had to die a substitutionary death for sinful humans. You guys can make fun of me, but my sophomore year, my friend ran over a squirrel while we were driving and I cried. I still get made fun of for that. And I understand I'm reading myself into the text here, but I was just wondering what it would be like to live in this culture where an animal had to be sacrificed every time you sinned, and I would be utterly overwhelmed. I can understand how that system was created to make me think there must be a better way. There must be a reformation of this system that is entirely better There aren't enough animals on the planet to die in my place. One commentator said something like, the old covenant sailed on a sea of blood. But the blood of the sinless God-man, Jesus Christ, that's a sufficient price. And that only needed to be offered once. Praise God. Look at verse 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And I can no longer contain myself to continue to postpone talking about the glorious blessings of the better covenant. You see, I've stopped us at every verse before it starts talking about the implications of the new covenant because that's the final point, the better covenant. 
Christ entered a better place with a better payment, and he made a better purchase. And we'll look at two things under this point. First, the nature of a biblical covenant, and second, the blessings of the better covenant. First, the nature of a biblical covenant. We'll look at those verses that seem confusing, uh, verses 16 through 22. I'll reread them. For where a will is involved, the the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Greek word for covenant and will is the same word. They're not always the exact same thing, but they can be very related and overlap a lot. English translators choose which word they will use based on the context. But here's what I believe is the overlapping principle that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. Listen to this. For both a will and a covenant a death has to occur for the promises to take effect. In a will, which is exactly actually how we understand it today, a person decides what they're going to give another person or people once they die. Most of us assume, hopefully rightly, that we're in our parents' will and that that they'll give us some money or some of their stuff when they die. A will takes effect only when the one who established it dies, verse 16. So it's the exact same with the new covenant and very similar with the old covenant. The old covenant was inaugurated with a death, but it wasn't the death of a person. It was the death of an animal, the substitutionary sacrificial death of an animal. So in the old covenant... After Moses told all the people the commands of God, namely the Ten Commandments, he sacrificed calves and goats and he sprinkled the book and the people and the tent and the vessels with blood, purifying the non-human things but symbolizing to the humans the necessity of their need to be covered in a substitute's sacrificial blood. And then Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, meaning that by the shedding of this animal's blood, the covenant is inaugurated or put into effect. Then, still considering the nature of a covenant, we read the principle in verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in God's plan of salvation... Blood, again, also known as a sacrificial death, has to be shed in order for there to be forgiveness of sins. So, considering the new covenant, in the upper room, when Jesus is having Passover with the disciples, when he institutes the Lord's Supper, look at what he says in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. 
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Once Jesus' sacrificial blood was shed, the new and better covenant was inaugurated. It was put into effect. As he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. Not it is available, or it has begun, or I hope this works. He said it's finished. He purchased the new covenant. There are many, many blessings of the New Covenant. Read the New Testament. Remember from chapter 8, which Dan preached a couple weeks ago, the author of Hebrews quoted Jeremiah. I'm not going to reread it all. I just want to summarize it. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, prophesying of the New Covenant. I'll read you some of the I wills that really hit Dan so hard that week. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, he says. A little bit later, he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's amazing. That's an amazing promise, you guys. But there's even more. Based on the verses this morning, there are seven blessings of the better covenant. Now we're going to work our way back from the beginning to the end and see all the blessings of this better covenant. Number one, he secured for us an eternal redemption. That's at the end of verse 12. The word redemption carries with it the idea of slavery and bondage. We know the Bible teaches that all mankind are slaves to sin, just like Israel was slaves to Egypt. For a slave to be freed, a price or a ransom must be paid. And Christ paid with his own blood so we could be saved from the bondage to sin. Here are a couple cross-references from the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Mark 10, 45, one of my favorites, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Christ bought his church with his blood, he bought her forever. He loves you. He loves me too much to let us go. He paid too great a price. How will he not keep us in his love? You guys should read Romans 8 this afternoon. There is nothing, no thing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. He paid too high a price and secured for me and for you an eternal redemption. That's number one. Number two. He has purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's in verse 14. 
Remember, again, for the third time, the Old Covenant, verse 9 of chapter 9, the Old Covenant could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But the New Covenant can. The New Covenant changes us from the inside. The Old Covenant dealt with externals that allowed God's people to offer sacrifices with irreverent and idolatrous hearts. But the New Covenant gives us new hearts. Ezekiel 36, he removes the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. He cleanses our consciences from the guilt and condemnation of sin. Listen to what John Owen says about this verse. Just as a Jew was unclean through contact with a dead body and so may not approach God in worship until purified, so a guilty sinner whose conscience is affected with a sense of guilt of sin, does not dare approach God's presence until sin is removed from the conscience. But Jesus Christ can cleanse our conscience. And when our conscience is cleansed, we're enabled to serve the living God, the verse says. Do you want assurance that you're a Christian this morning? That you have a purified conscience? Here it is. You want to serve God. What does that mean? It means a lot. It's an umbrella term. It means to know Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to glorify Him. You're not here in church just to go through the motions, to check off a box. You're here because you want to know God and love Him. And you love God's people and you want to be here. And I'm not trying to brown nose, but this is one of my favorite times of the week, if not my favorite time of the week. Because I want to know God more. I want to sing songs to Him and hear your voices singing songs to Him. I want to fellowship with you guys and encourage you in the gospel and be encouraged in the gospel. I grew up in the church. And so I, I, can, I can remember what it was like to come here with an impure conscience. To read the Bible and say, I have no idea what this book is saying. And I don't know what that sermon was about. And why, why does everyone seem so happy and joyful? This is a weird place. And when I got saved and got a purified conscience, there's no greater joy than to be with the people of God, worshiping God, knowing that we can approach Him here this morning in His presence only through Jesus Christ, that our sins can't condemn us. I hope no one in the hearing of my voice is here to check off a box. I hope you're here because you want to know and love God more. That's evidence of a purified conscience. You know, and I know, that we've been bought with a price. So we want to glorify God with our lives. <clears throat> That's number two. Number three, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, ensures that those who are called may better word, would receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's in verse 15. The called here refers to what theologians articulate as what's called an effectual calling. It means that God calls a person to himself irresistibly, effectually, through the preaching of the gospel or the reading of his word and ensures that they will receive the promised eternal inheritance. He's purchased the new covenant for them. And the ultimate content, there's probably much this in eternal inheritance means. I didn't have 
a million hours to study and tell you everything it means. But the ultimate content of our eternal inheritance is Him. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. One of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. You guys, God is the greatest news of the gospel. If you want to read a good book on that, it's called God is the Gospel by John Piper. Forgiveness is a means to an end. So often in our evangelism, we end with that. You can be forgiven of your sins, and that's great news. We should worship God for that. But we want forgiveness because we want God. When you get in a fight with your spouse, you don't want forgiveness in and of itself. I want forgiveness so I can have my wife back. I don't like this frustration between each other. And so forgiveness removes the debt that we owe to each other so we can have each other. And that's the good news of the gospel. You get forgiven of your sins so you can have God. He'll be your God and you'll be his person forever, as they say in the sandlot. Number four, we're redeemed from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is also in verse 15. We're born guilty slaves under the old covenant. Every human being can look at the Ten Commandments and know they have not obeyed them with perfection, not even close. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The old covenant said, do this and live. Only no one could do it. The promise, the purpose of the old covenant and the Ten Commandments among a couple other things, but here, was to show us our sin. We can't do the Ten Commandments. And even when we try, we can't do them perfectly. That's the standard, perfection. In the Ten Commandments, we see the holy character of God and the high standard we cannot attain on our own. And we must acknowledge our sinfulness. But the death of Christ has redeemed those who believe in him. We are fully forgiven for falling short of the glory of God. What a blessing. Number five, Christ has appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. That's in verse 24. Jesus Christ is our advocate who intercedes for us. We've been seeing this throughout the book of Hebrews. He's not just in the Father's place because he deserves to be there, which he does because he's God. But he's there on our behalf. His presence there enables us to have access to the Heavenly Father. What a comfort this should be for us, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, the righteous, speaking to the Father on our behalf. Intercession means effectual advocacy. It's not as if the work of Christ on the cross was insufficient or that God the Father is still struggling a little bit not to be mad at us for our sin. One author says this, Christ's intercession is the moment-by-moment application of His atoning work. Christ is lovingly and joyfully reminding the Father that our debt has been paid. 
And surely the Father's delight is to say yes and agree with his beloved Son's pleading on our behalf. He's there interceding for us. Number six, this is a twofer. They're related. He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's verse 26. And he was offered once to bear the sins of many. Verse 28. I've been trying to do a new thing with my wife on the way to church. She doesn't know this. She's going to find out in second service when she's here. But a couple minutes before we arrive at this church building, I've been trying to say our sins are forgiven. Because like I admitted before I started preaching this morning, I had a hard week. And sometimes if you, we have hard mornings. You have little kids like me. Most mornings are hard, to be honest. And so we can come here on Sunday and the kids were fighting and the baby had a total blowout upper back right as we were going to leave. Sorry if that's too much information. And as I was flipping the eggs, my yolk burst. If that doesn't make you mad, I don't know what will. Thank you. That is so frustrating. And you come in here angry that your egg yolk burst. How sad, you guys. Funny and sad. So as I'm arriving here, I just try, and it's just as much for me as it is for Audrey. Our sins are forgiven. Like that's what we're going in here to praise God for. I break a thousand yokes, a million yokes for the rest of my life. My sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. He bore the wrath of God against my sins and your sins. There's nothing better than that. Why do we allow our hearts to become so callous to that? Me too. May we not. <clears throat> Orthodox Christians, though, were not universalists. Jesus isn't a universalist. He didn't pay for the sins of everyone who has ever lived. Otherwise, everyone would be saved. And Jesus and the New Testament authors teach that, unfortunately, sadly, there will be people in hell. It's a real place, and real people will actually be there. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And it's the only way for your sins to be forgiven. Number seven, and finally, he's coming again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 28. He's coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back, you guys. Not to deal with sin, it's already been dealt with. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Another one of the great experiences of Christian assurance is an eagerness for the Lord to return. Are you excited for him to return? Do you think about that much? I do. I'm excited for it. And it's not wrong to say, but Lord, I have loved ones who don't believe in you yet. So give me a few more years. I have kids who I want to see grow up. I want to see them place their faith in Jesus Christ. There are good things. God made this world and he said it was good and he gave us lives and that's good. 
But do you find in your heart this underlying eagerness? I think it's a plan of the Lord that every generation of Christians, since Jesus has ascended, has hoped that their generation would be the one that he returns. And I hope that for us. I hope to see the sky split someday in a loud trumpet and come back. I'm excited about that. To see him in all of his glory. I heard an illustration one time from a pastor. I'm going to steal it. It's really good. We live in a, in a time where it's as if God has two hands up. Okay? With one hand, he's holding back his wrath against sin and sinful people. But with the other hand, he's saying, come to my son, Jesus Christ, and receive forgiveness of your sins. And when Jesus Christ comes back, that means God's hands are down. His wrath is coming, judgment day is coming, the offer doesn't stand anymore. But we don't have to fear that, those who are in Christ. We can eagerly wait for that, because Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. So we'll be brought up to him, however that's going to work. I need to study in times more. <laughs> we'll see him, we'll be with him. And if you're a Christian, praise God for that. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I just I offer Jesus Christ to you. Acknowledge your sin. You need a Savior. Nothing you can do can earn your way there. You just repent of your sins, meaning turn away. Lord, I don't want to live a life of sin. I want to live for you and I... Believe that Jesus Christ died in my place and rose again. You'll be saved and you will find in yourself an eagerness for him to come back someday. Christ entered a better sanctuary by a better sacrifice and inaugurated a better covenant. He entered a better place with a better payment and he made a better purchase. The original audience, Jewish Christians were considering walking away from Jesus. I doubt many of you are Jewish or were Jewish, but maybe some of you are. But most of you probably aren't considering going back to Judaism. But people in this room right now, I'm sure, are struggling to believe. Maybe it's been a struggle for a lot of years. There's nothing better. I've tried it all. There's a lot of people in here who have tried it all. There is nothing better than Jesus Christ. You can't find salvation or satisfaction in anything else but Jesus. One of the main pillars of this church is community groups. If you're struggling and you're not in a community group, join one. That is one of the main purposes of a community group is to walk alongside each other. And you can go to those people and say, I just struggle with doubt all the time. And the Lord will bless you with a group that for as long as you're in Windsor and go to this church and are part of that group will hold your hands all the way to the Feast of Zion. But don't walk away because there's nothing better. For those of you in here who, who are Christians, I want to remind you this. We're, we're in a covenant with the living God. We are in a covenant with the living God. The triune God isn't something to be tried to see if he works. He isn't one to settle on until something better comes along. That's mostly an indictment on us millennials. 
There's always something better. We're scared to make any choice because there might be a better choice later. Well, there's no better choice. God isn't our cosmic butler who exists to make sure we're comfortable. He's the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. And the author of Hebrews calls us to consider our relationship with him with deep seriousness and worshipful joy. Excuse me. Seriousness because of our sin. And we acknowledge our sinfulness compared to a holy God. And worshipful joy because Jesus paid it all. He has purchased for us every spiritual blessing in Christ, as it says in Ephesians 1. So what else would we want to do, you guys, but live for him and love him and serve him? Where else would we go? He has the words of eternal life. We can praise him for what he's done for us in Christ and the new covenant that we're in because of him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We're humbled. We're in awe of what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for bringing us into a new covenant where we don't have to do anything except for believe in Jesus. And we get you, God. God and you. So I pray for everyone in here, Lord, for those who are doing well, those who are struggling to believe, and those who aren't Christians. You would draw us all into a deeper intimacy with you, that we would leave here worshiping, that we would be excited to sing another song and praise to you for what you've done. We love you, Lord. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.